Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two familiar voices today. First in seconds, Jody Dean will explain why populism is always of the right and never the left. And Jane McAlevey talks about real organizing, not fake organizing. First, Jody Dean. Jody is a prolific author, most recently of Crowds and Party from Verso, which we discussed in this show last summer, and a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. She has an article called Not Him, Us, and We Are in Populists in the new issue of Theory and Event, an online journal of political theory on the challenges of the Trump era and the pitfalls of the populist temptation. You can find the article by Googling Theory, Event, Jody Dean, Populism. Jody Dean. So I want to talk about populism, but first I want to talk about the tweeter in chief. We have a president who is an active use of Twitter, uh, active user of Twitter. Uh, people uh, um, get up every morning and wonder what the president tweeted overnight. We've got pundits analyzing uh, the morning tweet flow from Trump Tower or the Oval Office or Mar-a-Lago, wherever he is at the moment. What do you make of the fact that we have a president for whom Twitter was an important part of his rise to power and uh, an important way of his uh, communicating with the public? Trump shows us how communicative capitalism has come into its own. By that, what I mean is communicative capitalism has promised us that everyone can say whatever they want. Whenever they want, it's promised us a kind of immediacy of every opinion being equal and every opinion mattering. And weirdly, what Trump does is put that strange semi-democratic power in the hands of the president. So instead of recognizing, as presidents tend to, that they have the so-called bully pulpit and can use the office, Trump still uses his own personness, his own handle, and tries to speak to people directly. So circumventing the mainstream media and acting as if he's just the same as any other person tweeting, even while knowing that he really isn't. The primary shock to the elites is here's a president not acting presidential, not using the office, but just using himself. The appeal to the base is, oh, my God, here's someone just like us who communicates just like us directly to us. And that's a big change. Trump has, what, 19, 20 million followers? He's up there in Katy Perry territory. So it's a very uh, strange form of democracy. The social media universe tends towards, if not monopoly, oligopoly. And complete and total celebrity culture. People become popular for outrageous statements, for retweetability, for just being celebrities on their own. And the content doesn't have to matter. One of the problems with the discourse of fake news is it acts as if under communicative capitalism, the sharing of news is based on its meaning or its factuality. Actually, what happens is people um, share and forward things that are strange, exciting, outrageous, bizarre. The truth and falsity of something doesn't really matter. Fake news is not a thing. It's just what's going to be popular. And then things that are already popular or things that are already powerful can increase their popularity and power. And things that are not have a hard time struggling. In communicative capitalism, there are tendencies always to oligopoly or to power law distributions of some things automatically getting much more circulation, much more strength than other things. It's not really ever an equal playing field. As you say, the shift from message to contribution is what characterizes the discursive world we live in now. Could you talk a bit more about what you mean by that? In communicative capitalism, we have a, a real shift in how language or meeting or utterances work. Typically, we think of an utterance or a statement as something that has meaning. You know, as good Marxists, we could call that the use value of an utterance, right? What it means. But in communicative capitalism, what matters much more is its exchange value. Can it be shared? Will it be circulated? The meaning doesn't really matter, right? That's why cat photos are fun and any kind of outrageous Um, statement can be fun. People will share it if they like it or share it if they don't like it. They'll share it even if they don't understand it. The meaning doesn't really matter. For those of us who come out of either traditional journalism or academia, where large quantities of print uh, were the things that we uh, we grew up on, we feel like fuddy-duddies in this world. Yeah, it's it's pretty awful, right? I mean, I even noticed that sometimes comments on comment threads on Facebook are now too long to read. It's like, oh no, it's on the one hand, I feel like I need to keep up. But on the other hand, real arguments, real exchanges actually 
take some time to make. And, and notice also, Doug, something weird that happens on um, with this. It's another aspect of communicative capitalism, and I, I call it the with Zizek, the decline of symbolic efficiency. The context or meaning of words starts to um, collapse. Like people will use the same word in multiple different ways and then argue about it, but not really have an actual argument where they're d- figuring out how to use the word in the same way. It's more like, well, this word means this. And then someone else says, well, no, this word means that. But the problem is that the word meaning isn't stable. It just circulates as a single word no matter how, um, no matter what people think about its meaning. And then no one has the time or the patience for the long discourse or long article or long explanation that maps out the different meanings of the word and kind of explains the history of the word and then lets people try to figure out, oh, okay, well, I'm using it this way and here's why. It becomes just the kind of battle over, oh, we all mean something different. It's funny, sometimes I try to explain to uh, friends who are not as deeply embedded in the left social media world as I am, uh, the meaning of some controversy or other. You know, there's always a controversy of the day, and it seems very, very important when you're in the midst of it. And then you try to explain it to someone, and it's just, it requires so much explanation. It feels like you're uh, uh, traveling from a different world to, to explain uh, you know, this, this strange land you originate from. And then the problem is, um, were we mistaken to get involved in the controversy? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems very real and very important at the time. I think a lot of them are real and important. And the reason is it's at some level, it's the way we struggle through to try to come up with, particularly particularly in the world of left Facebook, where we try to come up with something like a common way of being or a common set of terms or a common politics. So some of the political arguments, even though they may seem kind of petty and arcane um, three days later, I think are actually how we're working out what a left politics looks like under these conditions. Yeah, I mean, we can criticize the social media for making us shallow and distractible, which I feel every minute of every day. But on the other hand, it does create connections and friendships. I wouldn't know you if it weren't for Facebook. Uh, you know, it, was, uh, it does create connections and friendships that wouldn't otherwise exist and also, you know, enables rapid mobilization. It may not uh, enable long-term serious organizing, but it doesn't make possible a really rapid mobilization, which you've seen in the last few weeks of the Trump era. Yeah, those have been super useful, right? But I like the airplane, um, the airport ones were amazing. The awareness of the different components of the women's strike on International Women's Day, you know, there's something really there. What I think we should hold up and emphasize is that bubbles are good. They're ways that groups come to understand themselves as groups. That's something we can use a lot of, particularly in this utterly um, chaotic seeming, they're not actually chaotic, but chaotic seeming world of social media and you know, a fragmented culture. Okay, let's talk some more about Trump. In your essay in Theory and Event, uh, you open by reminding us of the, uh, the George W. Bush years when people on the left, liberals and people on the left, sort of succumbed to a despair that this was really what the United States was all about. It was a reactionary country. You know, the red states were the true beating heart of America, and we were all just a bunch of, you know, marginal pointy heads who don't care for anything. <laughs> there seems to be some relapse of that. Oh, well, it doesn't seem quite so severe in the Trump years, but there is some, some, some relapse of that, that Trump's election proves that this is just a hopelessly racist and sexist culture and xenophobic culture. And uh, I guess all we can do is secede. But what do you think of that analysis? In the first month after the election, that was the primary sentiment. The sentiment was everyone who did not vote for Clinton was a racist. And now we have this horrible truth of America and it's the end of the world. Fortunately, over the last couple of months, that total um, mapping of the U.S. as one giant red state, I think, has been has pretty much fallen away. People see resistance. The fact of the of widespread resistance is making a difference. Also, the fact that the Republicans are themselves a fragmented, ornery bunch who don't get along with each other, that's also been really visible. And the splits in Trump's own administration, right, the way that he plays different sides off of each other as his leadership style. So I think one of the differences we've we've started to see is that the controversies, the splits, the divisions, they go all the way down. They're from, you know, they're within the White House, within the Republican Party, 
within Congress and within the country. So fortunately, so far, we haven't had too much of a consolidation of what happened in the Bush years, um, where it was just like, oh, my God, this is the country. And then a word that's come into circulation, not just because of Trump, but uh, because of what uh, Mark Blythe calls global Trumpism, you know, Brexit uh, and Le Pen and, and populism. You know, this is all uh, gathered under the, the name populism. And then Sanders also uh, sometimes brought into this category. Uh, and then people on the left saying we need a real true populism uh, to counter the fake populism of uh, Trump and Bannon and those characters. First of all, what do we mean by populism exactly? When people use this word, what do they think they're saying? What do you think populism stands for? What does it mean? First of all, in popular media, so in everyday mainstream media coverage in the U.S., populism seems to be a throwaway term for popular unhappiness with elites. And it seems to be offered as a very neutral and generic term for people throwing out the bums as a kind of neutral designation of people against elites. Immediately, we should be suspicious. Right? And we should be suspicious uh, for the reasons that you already suggested and in, in your um, question here. This so-called neutral term equates right and left. They make Bernie and Trump look like two sides of the same coin. So why is that a problem? First of all, it's a problem because it's based on a kind of hidden, neutral, liberal democratic middle. So the assumption is, well, the middle of anything is liberal democracy, and then you have two deviations, a right deviation and a left deviation. And notice, in both of these populist deviations, the deviations come from the people, right? There's no problem with the mainstream. It's only that there's a mainstream and then right deviation or left deviation. So the personifications of these trends in recent history would be Trump, Sanders, and uh, Hillary Clinton. Yes, exactly. So Hillary gets positioned automatically as a kind of neutral middle. The Democratic Party automatically as a neutral middle. It's a mistake. Going more in depth, why? What, what's underlying this mistake? Well, what's underlying this mistake is a failure to analyze the underlying role of the economy. What's happening economically that's driving kinds of opposition? So instead of seeing an opposition to owners, to capitalists, to banks or financial institutions that control capital, that control um, means of employment, that control wage relations, that are behind foreclosures, that profit off of debt. Instead of having any economic analysis, we have a very superficial political read of opposition to elites who are only figured as some kind of bland political elite, but not understood as having any other authority. So the only reason there can be such a bland, neutral analysis is because it's, it's excluding an analysis based on the capitalist economy and class division. So this is another big part of the problem, is that it acts as if there's not an economic role. It treats all elites as the same and doesn't let us see their role as capitalist. Additionally, in making left and right the same, it acts as if left and right have a the similar relation to leaders. Well, a populist leader, now if we go into more of a, um, a kind of classic academic understanding of populism, populism usually is characterized by a massive popular upheaval that is centralized in a leader and constructed via the demonization of an enemy. Right? That's classic populism, is there's some kind of leader who's going to represent the people, and there's some kind of enemy that he's going to represent the people in fighting against. Why is this a problem? At least two reasons. One is that the enemy becomes something to be expelled from society, rather than society being understood as having a constitutive set of problems and difficulties that it hasn't been able to resolve. And two, of course, the problem of the leader. The leader becomes the vehicle for all of this popular um, um, outrage. And that's why, I mean, Trump and Sanders were not the same kind of figures, right? Trump was actually an external figure. Um, Bernie had been um, in Congress and in the Senate for a long time. So he wasn't the same kind of external figure channeling energy. He was a politician who'd been a career politician, but Trump wasn't. I'm speaking with Jody Dean, who teaches politics at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. 
Populism is kind of vague on who the subject of its history is. For example, you know, in traditional Marxist or socialist politics, the working class is the producer of value, the motor of history. The value that the working class produces is expropriated by a capitalist class, which uses it to exploit further. The hero of populism is the people with a capital P, but it's all rather vague precisely who that people is or what they do. Populism thinks just in terms of the people as a kind of myth of social totality. They don't think of the people as primarily producers whose wealth is expropriated from them. In right-wing terms, usually this people is something like the organic nation, and they're um, usually harmed by, in European history, the figure was that of, of, of the Jew who comes in as this foreign body. In contemporary um, Europe, and with the rise of the right, we see this foreign body literally as immigrants, right? Immigrants are the key figure around which European populism is being constructed right now. It's also why Trump can be understood as a populist leader. He's also banking on expelling immigrants, that the problem with America is this foreign body, which also lets us think, lets us recognize, yeah, populism is a right-wing formation. There is nothing about populism that the left should try to reclaim or think that is good for us or think that, oh, we can just have the same thing that the right has, but call it left. Now, what are you applying this critique to classic American populism in the late 19th century? Because that, to me, strikes as, as a mixed bag. You know, there's some good things. They wanted public ownership of uh, significant uh, utilities and resources. At the same time, there was this kind of petty bourgeois uh, contempt for those both above and below. And it seems that at least that kind of American populism could break either way. I agree with you on that, Doug. My critique is targeted for the left right now. And my hope is that we can basically convince people on the left not to understand left politics as a populist politics. Populism functions as a politics that's, has, that basically relies on a rhetorical strategy. So even for the people who want to think of themselves as left politics, they encourage narratives. Like we just need a new narrative that links together groups, um, the different groups who are part of the people, or we need a better rhetoric. They tend to take politics as consisting already of fragmented identity groups, and then identity groups need to be brought together um, to create the people. And the way we'll do that with, with is like branding or a better narrative or new rhetoric. But notice that doesn't have any analysis of how groups might fit together, of the ways that struggles can and do overlap, overlap, and the problems that not all struggles are going to come together. This effort to produce a left populism today replaces an analysis of the objective conditions of politics in which we find ourselves, which are primarily economic conditions because of capitalism. They replace that with an emphasis on rhetoric, narrative. Um, let's just have a good set of branding, and then we can all come together. A lot of the left populism, which actually I guess there's some commonality with right populism in this score, uh, focuses on a critique of finance and of bigness. So if we just break up the big banks and break up the big monopolies uh, and let competition uh, flourish, then our economic problems will be solved. Do you think that's a good agenda? No, that, that means that they're on the right. And it's also a good indication that lets us see that they're on the right. It's an embrace of markets. That's been one of the characteristics of right-wing populism, but right-wing populism, can't. they don't like the elites that arise out of markets, but yet they don't want there to be a collective control over production and distribution that can replace markets. So they actually don't have an analysis that can get beyond the conditions that produce right-wing populism. And you can't, you can't just flip it, oh, right and left, because it's not like they're two parallel sides of one general neutral field, right? Society is ruptured by a fundamental antagonism, which, as Marxists, we understand as class struggle. That configures where we are. We can't just kind of pretend that it doesn't and that all struggles are kind of ripe for the picking if we get a good story and can connect them. At the end of uh, your piece, The Theory and Event uh, essay, you talk about uh, um, class and uh, the populist uh, versus a communist approach to the class issue. The populists will accuse uh, communists and, and socialists of a workerism. You don't accept that charge. 
the problem with some of the contemporary people who are advocating a left populism is that they act as if class were an identity. And so it's like a gender identity or a race identity. It's just another narrative. Whereas for Marxists, we have an analysis of society in terms of the economy. And we recognize that class designates where people are positioned because of the capitalist economy. It doesn't matter for the analysis if people identify that way or not. It can matter for the politics, but it doesn't matter for the analysis if someone thinks of themselves as a worker or not a worker. If they come under a wage relation, then they are at the mercy of capitalists. When you talk that way, you'll get accused, though, of not caring about other forms of oppression around uh, sex or gender, sexual identity, uh, or race and ethnicity. Uh, As you write in your piece, communists in the past have not been quiet on these topics, but uh, that is the rap that you're going to get. uh, And how do you respond? When people who want to talk about the left in terms of populism raise that, they usually raise it as a way to exclude class struggle as important for the analysis. They don't want to recognize the way that the capitalist system benefits from the um, production of gendered inequalities, say, by having the wage gap between men and women, or the way that the capitalist system relies on the expropriation of unpaid labor, which is often done by women in the home, but is also often done in the secondary and tertiary economies that um, characterize low-income people, poor people, unwaged people, often um, people of color. So one of the problems that happens in the name of a so-called left populism class is pushed out of the picture is that the economic realities facing um, women and people of color are also no longer visible. Instead, you have a vague list of oppressions, no account of how the system orders and benefits from them, and no way of addressing the fundamental problem. And and as I was about to say earlier on the problem with workerism, one of the other um, issues that that, that accompany this, this rhetoric of left populism is that as they treat class as an identity, they fail to recognize that the struggle of the proletariat was always to abolish itself as a proletariat, right? It was for the abolition of classes. It was for the end of the very position of a proletariat. This perception has receded somewhat, but there was a sense that you know Trump was an incipient fascist. That they were really in, you know had this master plan for transforming everything. Uh, the stumbles of the last few weeks have, have, have put a dent in that analysis, but it still exists. Is this a good time for the left? A bad time for the left? Should we be afraid of of what uh, of internment camps in our future? How do you evaluate uh, Trump and, and and the possibilities for the left in 2017? I'm not afraid of internment camps um, for the U.S. left. I'm afraid of camps for um, people who are going to be um, deported. I'm afraid of increased imprisonment for the undocumented. I'm afraid of more aggressive policing of poor people and um, people of color in the name of law and order, um, ICE raids in um, rural areas that have a lot of migrant farm labor. Incarceration and imprisonment in camps can increase, but I don't think they're going to be politically deployed in the way that we might typically associate with fascism or that we see, say, um, in a place like Turkey. The situation is dire and bad, but for the left, what we have to do is get our own house in order, right? We've got to focus our efforts on what is the left perspective on our present? If we think about the pers- of our present from a populist perspective, we deny the fundamental role of the capitalist economy in creating the inequalities and in creating the rage that the current moment is responding to, right? If we have a populist analysis, we can't see the present in the way that it needs to be seen. So what the left has to do is to be um, better about Um, presenting and pushing an economic analysis of the present and better about treating each other as comrades um, in in the struggle rather than, you know, kind of fighting over small differences as we try to get hits over the outrage of the day. 
That was Jody Dean, a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith's Colleges in Geneva, New York. Shortly after we recorded the interview, Jody sent me this message. I finally realized the core of the problem with left populism. It repeats the same problem the Democratic Party has, ignoring the class struggle. And so all left populism can be is Democrats from below, which is why the attack is on elites. It's really against the elites in the Dem Party rather than the owners of capital. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of David Bowie's Big Brother, ironically, of course. Next, Jane McAlevey. Jane has been on this show many times to discuss her approach to union organizing, an approach that's full of lessons for anyone wanting to do politics. Like, instead of making noble moral gestures, ask yourself instead what your theory of power is and what your points of leverage over existing power structures might be. Jane's latest book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, was published last October by Oxford University Press. We're a little late getting to it, but much better late than never. Jane McAlevey. You make a very useful uh, distinction uh, among three approaches to political organization or political activity we can talk about. One is an advocacy model, one is a mobilization model, and the third is organizing, the one that you're really interested in. But but tell us about this this model, this unholy trinity of uh, political action. Yeah, sure. First of all, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, it's always good to talk to you, Doug, and to be on your show. So advocacy, mobilizing and organizing. Yeah, advocacy, which I think really developed uh, into a dominant model in this country, starting in the early 1970s, uh, is essentially, you could say it's the Nader groups, it's something like Greenpeace. It's where a group of people, generally well-educated, full-time staff, you know, are paid money by someone to advocate for a cause on behalf of the cause or those affected by it. Um, so that's advocacy. Now, if I want to put a class angle on this, it's, it's as if the professional or a portion of the professional managerial class is hired to uh, do work on behalf of the downtrodden. Yes, for sure. And there, and by the way, there is a class analysis to it, right? And I mean, interestingly, I quote, uh, Theta Scotchpole's book, Diminished Democracy, in the very beginning of No Shortcuts, because she actually did some interesting analysis. I mean, she sort of, I didn't realize until I was reading that book of hers, that she also called out the idea that there was this explosion of sort of, you know, working class kids who went off to college in the 1960s because of what happened with the GI Bill in the 1940s with vets coming home. So we have, we have an explosion of the number of what we used to call the working class kids who went off to college in the 1960s who sort of discover, you know, the world. And they came out of college and the student, uh, the anti-war movement sort of thinking that they were really wicked smart, smarter, it turned out, than the ordinary working class. And and they move into and set up this whole infrastructure of advocacy organizations. And they begin to think, hey, you know, we just need some money and we can sort of make sure that the laws that we passed in the 30s through the 60s, from clean air to Social Security to Medicaid and all that stuff, you know, we can all we have to do is just go enforce them. Um, and we can do that with some lawyers and some full-time do-gooders working for organizations. And we don't really need that messy thing called trade unions anymore. So that's, I think, the origins of the advocacy model in terms of it being something that came into the quote-unquote progressive movement, have their origins in that moment. And so I, I spend a lot of time on sort of the 1970s forward in terms of the critique of what we're doing wrong. By the mid-1990s or the post-Reagan moments, some people are beginning to realize you know, it turns out it's not good enough just to have, you know, a bunch of well-trained lawyers and liberals in full-time staff positions in Washington advocating for, quote-unquote, on our behalf to get press and, you know, to get media attention and, you know, to be taken more seriously. We actually have to have some ordinary people involved. So the big argument in the book is that we evolved 
a sort of new model, which is called the mobilizing model. And that's what I'm trying to call out as super problematic today. And as part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in in 2017 is because it used to be that people understood there was advocacy, lawyers, liberals, full-time staff working on behalf of others. That's sort of the do-gooder advocacy model. And then we thought there was organizing. And anyone who wasn't doing advocacy was doing organizing, which meant people were involved. We're actually relying on ordinary people to get involved, take action, do direct action. And what I'm pointing out in the book is that it's an illusion and that actually what's happened is something called the creation of a mobilizing model. And in the mobilizing model, it actually still is full-time, college-educated, professional staff who are actually the key agents for change. It's just that in the mobilizing model, they understand that to create a good Twitter feed or a good narrative or if someone's going to testify at the legislature, it turns out it's more effective if the testimony is actually delivered by one of the poor and downtrodden, if you like. Human props. <laughs> yeah, it's people as props. So in the mobilizing model, like the theory of power isn't any different than in the advocacy approach. The theory of power is just an elite theory of power where elite do-gooders can go out and get the work done. It's just that workers become props. They involve some people. Who they're involving is sort of what I call the activist core, those people who are already super committed um, to the campaign that we're trying to win. But what they're not fundamentally doing is actually enabling and empowering the masses of ordinary people to themselves learn that the only salvation is, in fact, themselves, right? Like, so in the organizing model, the theory of power, certainly the one that I'm still wedded to, and it's still working when we do it right, is a class struggle theory of power. The idea of the 1% versus the 99% has become like a passe slogan. It's like saying democracy or something these days, right? Like, sure, we're all for the 99%. First of all, we're not. Second of all, the question is, how do the 99% or as I like to say more like practically speaking about 80%, how is it that the 80% of the masses actually become involved? They only become involved in a serious way when they're actually leading their own struggles. And so in the organizing model, um, the theory of power is actually quite different. It's not an elite theory of power. The theory of power is about the millions of people in this country who are taking it in the neck and losing everything right now themselves have to be empowered and skilled and trained to stand up and fight for themselves. To me, the, the biggest challenge is that people haven't understood that there's this thing called mobilizing going on because everyone who's doing mobilizing says they're doing organizing. And the whole point of the new book is to say, no, you're not. And that's part of, part of why we're in the giant mess that we're in today. What you call the mobilizing model, it sounds a lot like the fight for 15. Well, sure. Absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much on a good day. I mean, some days it's just the advocacy model, honestly. And other days in other states, it functions mostly like a mobilizing model. And, you know, I've been known to be fairly critical of how the Fight for 15 campaign is being waged. And I haven't changed my opinion about that. But I do want to say it, it takes us to another segue. Thinking about the Fight for 15 campaign, which is absolutely a mobilizing model, right? It's people as props. There's there are not uh, right now thousands of low-wage workers making any decision and how any anything in that campaign is happening. That's not who's making the decision. A handful of elite staff have always been making the key decisions, along with a couple of big PR firms, have always been the people who are making the decisions and who are therefore the central lead actors in that campaign, with a lot of hardworking, ordinary people serving as props. There's a limitation to the idea that the fast food campaign should be the center of all of our attention to begin with, which is the whole idea that there are strategic sectors that we have to be organizing in to challenge capitalism effectively. And I'm, I'm partly arguing that while it's good, like while it's good that people get raises and that's important, and of course it'd be idiotic to say it's not good that people get raises, if we want to go at the power structure of this country, we have to think carefully about which sectors of workers have the most capacity to build the kind of power that we need to build to actually challenge capital. And I hate to say that as good as it feels 
to do the Fight for 15 campaign, it's not the most important strategic sectors that we need to be organizing in. And that's part of the limitation of the whole campaign. The focus on fast food workers sort of feeds into uh, an attitude among philanthropists and you know elite do-gooders, professional do-gooders, uh, that they're most interested in the weakest, poorest, most marginalized sectors of society. And actual power frightens them, I think. That target fits in. They're not really looking to challenge the order. They're just doing to do a little uh, old-fashioned uh, upper-class uplift work. Yeah, 100%. Bingo. Absolutely. That's exactly right. The philanthropic elite wouldn't be interested in challenging capital. It's an oxymoron, right? I mean, you wouldldn't be in the philanthropic sector. No, they'd be cl- committing class suicide if they did that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as complicated as the trade union uh, movement is, there isn't any day of the week when I wouldn't personally prefer uh, to be being funded uh, by the ordinary Jews of hardworking workers who have made the decision to pay them, at least in a system where people are paying dues in theory, right? When workers themselves are actually paying dues and paying the salary of the folks who they hire, at least in theory, we understand the capacity is there to seriously challenge uh, power and capital uh, because it is the masses of the workers paying the bills. Okay, and in contrast to these two deficient models you propose organizing as the real way to go, everyone will point out that we're not in the world of uh, giant factories anymore and big industrial towns, and it's really hard to organize in the, in an environment dominated by precarity and mar- you know, marginalization of the working class. Uh, you don't really buy that argument. No, I don't buy that argument, and I don't buy it for a bunch of reasons. First, look, for all the blah-blah that the robots are coming – A, they're not here yet. Look, the same people who want us to get stuck in a do-gooder model of advocating on behalf of the poorest, most downtrodden, weakest sectors of our society are also the people who sort of throw out the same argument, right? That there's really nothing to be done here. In the 1930s, when we had a, a smart left building a serious trade union movement, we had strategic sectors. They were not actually just organizing willy-nilly every – they weren't going to the buggy whip factory and organizing the buggy whip workers in the 1930s, right? That wasn't the theory. In today's economy, there are a whole bunch of strategic sectors where workers themselves still can hold power, where workers can still use the most powerful weapon that workers have, which is called the strike. There are still workers using the strike, and we need to be focused. Power building needs to happen in the sectors of the U.S. economy where workers still can have real agency, can still shut down the workplace and or do what I call creating a serious crisis for capital. For example, in the healthcare sector, right, when we strike, we don't actually shut it down because that'd be killing patients, but we create a full-time double payroll instantly for the employer and a very expensive double payroll during a strike that does, in fact, create a very, very serious crisis for capital in the act of healthcare worker strike. So in the case of the Chicago teachers, obviously, when they shut down, I mean, people say like, teachers, really, teachers, you know, like when they shut down the Chicago school system, They sure as hell created a crisis in the city of Chicago, and they did it for days on end. Let's just cut for a minute in this analogy to the idea of if you wanted to organize Walmart or you wanted to organize inside of sort of the retail sector. There's a bunch of people who have been trying to argue that the way to organize Walmart is not to go to the quote unquote Walmart associates. It's to go to the supply chain. It's to go to the distribution centers. It's to go to trucking ports and the warehouses where there are, in fact, stable workplaces that are fairly desperately needed by the same corporation that are not nearly as quickly or easily replaceable um, or as transient as sort of the front of the house retail worker in the Walmart model. I'm speaking with the writer and organizer Jane McAlevey, author of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age from Oxford University Press. Yeah, well, with just-in-time inventory practice, you know, you can shut down Walmart in a matter of days. Absolutely. So the point is, there are very clear strategic choices about ways that we could actually build power. Last year, I spent a lot of time working with a union called PASNAP. He's been doing some brilliant organizing um, in and around Philadelphia. But they're not the only one. But just as an example, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago now, three weeks ago, you know, they had a 100% out strike. Uh, in Philadelphia. 
And I'm just wondering, Doug, did you did you read that in the New York Times that there was a 100 percent out worker strike in the city of Philadelphia in a hospital? No, because people don't want to pay attention to where workers are still striking. There are a lot of places in this country where there are still actually strikes happening. They're not massive factories that were shutting down, but they're actually 100% out strikes. And guess what happens when workers are still holding 100% out, no one's crossed on the threshold of the workplace, total solidarity strikes. They win, right? We're winning when we do that still. So we have to be paying attention to the sectors of the economy where we can actually go at Walmart, like the supply chain, the distribution, all of those places, right? We have to do a power analysis and say, based on a power analysis, Where are the sectors of the economy where the strategies that we understand how to use as organizers are still effective? And zero in on those sectors of the economy. Had we done anything like a fight for 15-like effort in terms of money and resources focused on the right strategies inside of how to organize Walmart, I think we would have had a very different outcome in how to organize Walmart. The good news, I think, is that There are increasing numbers of sort of local unions in the education sector. There are a bunch of unions who took their inspiration from the Chicago teachers and are actually beginning to build real power. Um, It's happening in Los Angeles, in UTLA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles. It happened in Seattle on the 2015 strike in Seattle that people heard way less about. In Massachusetts, uh, the teachers union under reform leadership of Barb Maitaloni. Last November, when all the disastrous news was hitting this country, like one bright spot, the defeat of a $35 million hedge fund funded campaign to charterize the public school system of Massachusetts. That was a ballot initiative that went two to one against a $35 million hedge fund funded out-of-state money campaign to privatize schools in the state of Massachusetts because a left-led you know, union where a reform slate began to have some real impact said, we're not going to compromise. We're going to defeat the charter school initiative. And there was a lot of internal debate in that union about whether or not they could do it. And had there not been the educators for a democratic union, EDU, had they not won the presidency of that union, it's probably fair to say that there was a high likelihood that that union under a more constrained sort of conservative teacher union leadership was going to cut a deal with the governor, was going to say, okay, well, we'll just agree to raise the caps to a certain percentage of schools that can go charter in Massachusetts, and they would have done it. But instead, a progressive teacher union leader won election on the back of it's time to stand up to, you know, the attack that's coming at us. And she said, no, we actually can defeat them if we run a serious grassroots campaign and involve the whole community and all the teachers. And they did. And the polling, if they had listened to the morons in the Democratic Party consultant operation in Massachusetts, I was there doing some work with them who were saying, you know, the polling's dead even. And that's not a good sign at this phase. And we think, you know, we think we're going to lose. So we should just cut a deal with Charlie Baker, the Republican governor and the Democratic legislators. And let's just compromise and cut a deal to raise the cap on charter schools and mass. That's what would have happened. That's what a not forward thinking teachers union leadership was about to do. And fortunately, a more left led teachers union coalition took the presidency. And Barbara Maitaloni was smart enough to say, hell no, we're not compromising. And in November, it was two to one against the hedge funders. That's the same decision that the Chicago teachers union leaders made was to fight, not surrender. And they also won. Right. So to me, it's like there's almost an endless list of good examples right now of where when people are doing real organizing, we're winning. When you talk about organizing workers like this, you're going to hear someone say, uh, but worker is just one part of a person's identity. People live multiple lives in their communities. uh, And uh, this old style organizing isn't really adequate to the way people live. That's anything but accurate critique of your work, but uh, explain why it's not. I think in the 1930s, we understood the left leadership inside the trade union movements understood the same thing that those of us still winning today understand, which is that workers are not just workers. They are whole people. They have complicated, interesting lives. But the point of good organizing is to help make connections. It's to it's to enable people to see that if they connect up all the various points of oppression 
in their lives right now, gentrification. They're getting kicked out of their housing. They had a decent apartment with stable rent for years. Suddenly the, you know, the gentrifiers are coming to take their neighborhood. Um, it turns out, as I say in no shortcuts, it turns out that when you start to explain to people that the CEO that they're fighting in their hospital fight is on the board of the Philadelphia, in the case of Philadelphia, is sitting on the board of the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation, which is where Wells Fargo, of all godforsaken banks, is coming in to finance the gentrification of their neighborhood, that their CEO is connected. When you help workers start to make the fundamental connections that the CEO they're fighting in the workplace is also responsible for the bad things happening in their kids' schools and in their neighborhood in terms of getting kicked out of their their apartment complex, which is going to be demolished for some high-rent you know, studio, studio apartments. People begin to get enabled into the fight in a different way. They come to start to realize they actually have to build a working-class movement again to take control not just of the workplace, but also of their neighborhood, their schools, and their city, and their country. And when we help workers make those connections, that's what organizing is about, helping people understand and see the connections between their third shift uh, and the gentrifier coming into their neighborhood. They begin to fight differently. And I can tell you great stories from being in Philadelphia last year about what happened when we would help workers begin to see the connections that were taking place between oppression at work and oppression in their neighborhood. And they changed like the whole way that the workers came to see themselves and experience their fight. They're now not just activists in a new union, in a new work, in a newly unionized workplace. They're now leading fights throughout Philadelphia. And I just got another email sent to me from the union in Philadelphia two days ago about a huge rally. And it was a picture of a bunch of the nurses that we helped organized unions last year, leading a huge rally with the mayor of the city, with Kenny, uh, with a bunch of the elected leadership. And it was all the workers who just became to realize that they're not just leaders in the workplace. They're taking over Philadelphia like they are becoming major leaders in trying to revitalize a movement in the city of Philadelphia. So organizing is about helping people make connections and it's about connecting the various potential sources of power they have in their community together into one big fight. We're just about out of time, but you're the victim of a uh, patronizing and sexist review by my old pal, Rich Yeselson of The Nation. Do you have any words you would like to uh, um, address to Richard? Oh, boy. One, it'd be good to if he if he read the book a little bit more carefully, because apparently he didn't read the book. Like everything that we just talked about, which is the argument of the book, um, is about how do we rebuild a powerful movement? And it starts with actually giving agency to ordinary workers to enable them to fight. It'd be really helpful if any of that had been acknowledged. You know, he, in that review, yeah, I think sexist is definitely a really good word to use. I think he was he completely, like he never mentioned a word of anything I'd ever done, which I find totally fascinating. And he gave these huge puffy introductions to the two guys about allegedly the campaigns they had won. I think it was really a pathetic review that didn't in any way acknowledge both the real ideas that I'm putting forward, the real arguments I'm making, and in fact, the real history of the work, including the campaigns in Philadelphia last year, where all of the same methods were being used and where I had the pleasure of working with thousands of people and tons of great organizers who just upended a whole labor market. Yeah, I think the review was misguided, off-based, uh, sexist to the core, and it's like he didn't even actually read the core arguments in the book. I met Yeselson through a, uh, an email list of uh, elite liberal pundits, and he shared a consensus among uh, the participants that the left or liberals or whatever you want to call these folks is in a really structurally very weak position. All we can do is play defense. The right has the upper hand, uh, and we shouldn't make demands and just hope to make the best of a bad situation. Uh, that is pretty much the opposite of what you're saying right now. What, what do you say to that pessimism? First of all, it's pathetic. Good luck with that. Go try and build a movement on that, right? Maybe he missed the title of my first book, Raising Expectations, right? I mean, he has no faith in ordinary working class people. And if you start off with that, game over, right? Why don't you just saddle up next to Trump for sake? Seriously, I mean, the first rule of being a good organizer is that you actually have to believe, in the capacity of ordinary people to take tremendous action. And 
I do. And part of the reason why good organizers are still winning fights, like the fight we won in Philadelphia, and like the fight that the teachers just won, whether it was Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, or in Massachusetts, you can't possibly imagine a route back to victory in this country if you don't believe in the capacity of ordinary people. Organizers do. We help enable them to realize the power that they have. And every one of us who are still doing real organizing work in this country are still winning even in 2017. So the sooner that the Yeselsons get out of the way and realize, you know, he basically says in that review that I, I didn't have any big ideas compared to the two boys whose names I'm not even mentioning that he compared me to, right? And it's like, uh, the evidence is in the work, brother. Go look at what happened in Philadelphia last year where thousands of workers stood up and won and where they are now where they are now taking on the power structure of the city of Philadelphia. Go look at Illinois, where the Chicago Teachers Union has almost single-handedly, because of the work they did in building a movement in that state, held Bruce Rauner back from turning Illinois into Wisconsin or into Indiana or into Michigan. Like, ask Rich Yeselson, Huh. With Rauner there. Now, why didn't Illinois become the next Wisconsin or the next Michigan? Why hasn't it still happened? Because ordinary teachers built one hell of a movement and they have yet to let Bruce Rauner do to Illinois what happened in neighboring states where you had weak unions who were just circling the uh, building the fortress, as he called it, I think. Right. That didn't work very well in Wisconsin and Michigan. And the model of movement building and empowering ordinary teachers who went out and built a hell of a movement movement has actually held back the biggest hedge fund guy in Illinois. So the proof is in the pudding, uh, and he just needs to get out of the way of people who are actually trying to get the work done. That was union organizer and writer Jane McAlevey. Her book is No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age from Oxford University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, Stefan Grappelli doing a jazz hot take on the Internationale. Till next week, bye. <laughs>